we are continuing in the Hard Sayings of Jesus series this morning uh, with Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Thanks, Cindy. Welcome to Current. My name is David. I'm the lead pastor here. We're so glad you could be with us today. Uh, as Cindy mentioned, we are continuing our series, Hard Sayings of Jesus, and I have to confess here at the top that I cheated and actually included two today. Uh, if you're coming for one, you're gonna get a twofer. Uh, Jesus said here, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for anyone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. There, there's one of them. The second, it, speaking to this man, Jesus said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Uh, two hard sayings today. Uh, what's especially interesting, it seems to me, about this text and Jesus' interaction with this guy is that of all the people who approached Jesus, this is one of the very few people who came to him without really much of a problem, at least on the surface, right? I mean, so many people came to Jesus with these big needs, these desperate you know, hurts and pains, but this guy seemingly has it all together. He's what's known in the Bible as the rich young ruler, uh, a guy who I think is uh, very relevant to us today here in the Silicon Valley. Why? Because I think it could be said that the Silicon Valley is filled with many rich young rulers. People like him who have it seemingly all put together, people like him who are well off, and people like him who many would say are good or nice, and yet Jesus had some challenging, even disrupting words for him and by way of him to us, and then uh, Jesus had some incredibly beautiful and life-changing words for him and by way of him uh, for us. So what I wanna do is look at this text under two headers. The first is what Jesus and this interaction with the rich young ruler teaches us about ourselves, and the second is what Jesus' interaction with this guy teaches us about God. Okay, so what we learn about ourselves and what we learn about God. Uh, let me pray and then and we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much that we can come together and uh, look at your word now. Would you please give each of us your spirit to understand what you have for us? And I uh, pray for your spirit that you would help me speak your words and not mine. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, okay, so first, what Jesus' interaction with this rich young ruler teaches us about ourselves. So verse 17 says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. That, That is showing a sign of respect. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In our alpha group that we are running uh, midweek, which is a a group for those exploring the the Christian faith, uh, we asked this question as kind of a get to know you uh, question in in the group. uh, That is, if you had to be stuck in an elevator with somebody, anybody throughout history, uh, who would you choose and what would you ask? Right? So if you were stuck in an elevator with anybody, who would you choose to be stuck in an elevator with and what would you ask them? Uh, This interaction that this guy is having with Jesus makes me think of that because if you think of all the people you could ask a question of, this guy gets to ask Jesus a question. And not just any question, the question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This, qu- this question that if there is a God and there is a heaven, how do we get there? And what's pretty cool about this account is here we have Jesus' answer to that great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Verse 20, teacher, this rich young ruler declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, what's going on here? Uh, What I love about Jesus' interaction with this guy is it's very similar to just about every interaction he had with every person who approached him. Whether they were coming with a question of their own or their own request for healing or for, for whatever they were coming to him, Jesus would always answer their question, generally speaking, at face value. He'd say, okay, you're asking me this or you want this, Here's okay, let's talk about that. But almost more important to Jesus was getting at and addressing the person's heart. So people would come to him and they would ask this question and he'd, he'd respond, but then he'd really want to interact with them and get at the heart level. That's what Jesus is doing here with this rich young ruler. He's speaking into this man's heart because this guy comes with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him quite literally, quite on the surface level. He says, you know what God calls you to do. You know the, th- the commands that he wants you to uphold. And then Jesus lists off a number of these commandments. And it's at this that the rich young ruler, it seems to me, was probably almost salivating because he probably had come to Jesus with this question, not so much for an answer, but more for a confirmation, right? Because he's like, he jumps on it, right? When Jesus says, oh, you know the life you need to live, live this life, he's like, oh, I've done that, I've done that. Seems like this guy was figuring he had Jesus as his little confirmation, but he didn't have Jesus. Jesus had him, right? And goes on to speak into his heart, saying, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and give to the poor, then come follow me. And it was at this that the man's face fell, and we're told this very powerful statement. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, there's a hard saying here that we should probably talk about real quickly, and that is the hard saying of sell everything and give to the poor. Is what Jesus is saying here a a rule for every follower of his to follow, that every Christian needs to sell what they have and give to the poor? Is that what Jesus is saying? 
No, that's not what he's saying. And there's no place in the Bible or any other place that Jesus says, hey, if you're my follower, you need to sell everything you have and give to the poor. Even as there are plenty of places in the scripture where it says that his followers need to live generously and give sacrificially, there's never a place that says, hey, if you're a follower, you have to do it this way. So the question then becomes, well, why is he asking this guy to do this? Right? Why is he asking this guy in particular to sell all that he has and give it to the poor? That to me seems to be the key question to understanding what's going on here between Jesus and this guy. That to me seems to be the key question for why the scripture in, 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 indeed is in, is in the Bible itself. Because what the, the reason in which Jesus is telling this guy to sell all that he has and give to the poor, then come follow me, is because this guy had made wealth his one thing. This guy had made wealth his ultimate thing, the place where he found his ultimate sense of worth and value, his identity, or to use religious terms, where he was seeking his salvation. Or wealth is what he was worshiping. Uh, There's this really helpful concept in the Bible to help us understand the human heart that I think at first pass, our modern Western minds might be like, oh, I'm not following that. It's the thought of idolatry. Okay, idolatry is not really a practice widespread here in the modern West, okay? But it still is very much relevant to our lives today. Why is that? Well, when you think about what it means to worship a little idol, it, it's never about worshiping the idol in, in, in and of itself, the little figurine, the, the substance of wood or metal, whatever the case may be. But idolatry is about worshiping the God behind that idol, right? Worshiping the idol of, for instance, love, in relationships, fertility, or worshiping the idol of power and status, or of beauty and strength, or the god or idol of good fortune, which maybe this rich young ruler was bowing a knee to, even as he didn't know it. And Jesus was showing him that he was following this, he was putting his heart there. You know, it's really interesting that Jesus, in listing off these commandments, the, of, of the Ten Commandments, actually skips over the first few commandments that are listed in the Ten Commandments. Um, the first two commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Isn't that interesting? And the second one is this, you shall, have, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. Don't make a little idol. Don't worship any other god for me, before me. Why? because he was saying that if you find your one thing in anything but me, all you'll find is conditional love. I am the only one as the one who made you, loves you deeply, infinitely, who can offer you unconditional love. Everything else can only satisfy in part. And if we make something our ultimate thing, it can only ever let us down. And it will only ever eventually fade away. And so God says, find your ultimate in me. Make me your one thing. And what Jesus is showing this guy, this rich young ruler, is that he had made that one thing, that ultimate thing, not in God, even though he said he had been following him from his youth, but in his wealth. Uh, It's really easy, friends, to make an idol out of wealth here in the Silicon Valley. Wouldn't you say? Uh, You've heard me quote often the the CEO up the peninsula of VMware who, who's, who said on the record that we are essentially live in the most wealthy part of the US and at the same time the most miserly because we fall near dead last in per capita charitable giving. That's the Silicon Valley. That's the place where, where we all come to, to change the world but we, we change our bank accounts. Uh, that has to show us something about the power of wealth in our lives. Um, it's easy to forget our ideals 
Christian friends, it's easy to forget that all things come from him and are to be meant to be used for him and for others, that we are to hold wealth loosely and to give it freely and sacrificially, but wealth can take this form of a God in our lives. Uh, We call ourselves here at Current, Current, because if life is like a flowing river, then there's, there's a strong current in the Silicon Valley to find our ultimate sense of identity, our ultimate sense of worth, our ultimate sense of value in things like wealth. Uh, There's a strong current here, but Jesus said, whoever believes in me as the scriptures teach, from within them will flow rivers of living water. In other words, in Jesus, there's a new current, if you will, where if we find our ultimate value, meaning, and identity in him, there's life and life to the fullest. For this man, it was at the thought of losing his great wealth that his head dropped, and then he went away sad. Um, what might that be for you in your life? What might be for you that if it was all of a sudden to be taken away from you or threatened to be taken away from you, that you would drop your face sad and walk away? Maybe even from Jesus if you're a follower of his. Another form of idolatry in the Silicon Valley related to wealth has to be career. Any workaholics out there? <laughs> Any workaholics? Oh, it, you know, what's interesting about this one is so, much of, so many of us can work really, really hard when we don't actually have to work as hard as we do. Now, don't hear me wrong. Sometimes having to work really hard in those hours that you have to do is an unavoidable. That's not what I'm talking about. But sometimes we work so hard, it's actually to our own detriment or our, the detriment of our family or these different important things that we know, know to be true. Um, we, uh, Cindy and I were spending some time with some friends recently and there was this gal who's just so, such a lovely, love, uh, loving, gifted, high-capacity gal who's working in the, in the field of law. And she was talking about, she and her husband were both talking about how her pursuit of work and, and, her, and her career ambitions have really kind of gotten in the way of other things that she really wants to care about. Uh, things like spending more time with her family, she rarely sees them, spending more time in their community, uh, investing in the community, all, all sorts of things. And what they were saying is how she actually really has the ability to do that, she just doesn't really choose to practically. Um, she actually has a part-time status at her work, but she never works anything less than full-time hours. And she's saying, I don't, I, like, I don't get it, I don't know why I do this. Oh yeah, I do know why I do this. She's just kind of processing out loud. She said, it's not actually, I'm not so driven because I need the status and the acclaim. She's, like the, she's actually, the reason why I'm so driven is because I have a chip on my shoulder to prove that I can be successful. She had people in her family, notably her family, that she had to prove it to. And that's why she worked so hard. That's why she overworked himself. In fact, they even artic- articulated it as an idol. And I sat there and I thought, that's making a sermon. No, um, but isn't that an interesting thought? Someone says, here's an idol, even as they are actively wrestling with it. Isn't that interesting? That's the power of of idolatry in in our lives. All of us have something or a few things that we're prone to, and and only the most self-aware can identify these things. Think about the, the idol of relationships, for instance. Again, in Alpha, we were watching a video and they were kind of doing street interviews, so just interviewing a number of people in this montage clip. And one of the guys, it was so refreshing to hear his response. He's really clean cut, sharp looking dude, just, just, um, just presented himself well. And they asked him, so uh, what do you, f-? they asked all these people this question, like what, what makes you happy in life? And this guy said, I, I love that he's so real. He's like, um, women, alcohol, 
women, pretty much. Like that, that's the whole thing he said. And I was just like, man, that guy's keeping it real. What a, what a refreshing thing to like actually share. You know what I mean? And, and what, was he, what, was he, what was he so driven in these ways? Well, he's looking for relationships or what these relationships can offer to meet some sort of deep longing in him. It's really easy, Christian friends, whether it's for the sake of wealth, for the sake of career ambition, for the sake of relationships, to say, you know what, God, I'm gonna follow you, but if you wanna take this from me, I'm not gonna follow you. I'm gonna do it my way. You know, when it comes to this one over here, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep all the commandments since my, since my youth, but if you're gonna wanna take this away, when it really comes down to it, no, 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 this is, this is what I'm gonna hold on to. It's, we all do it. Think about the idol, I'll be, go through two more maybe uh, real, real quickly here. The idol of uh, what others think of you. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting one? Uh, we can make an idol out of what people might possibly sort of kind of maybe are thinking about us. And it just preoccupies our thoughts. It preoccupies, you know, wakes us up at night. And it affects not only our relationships, but it affects how we view ourself, ourselves. Or think about, this one's uh, the most interesting in my mind to kind of think about. Think about the idol of being a good person. We can make an idol out of being good, projecting ourselves as good people and saying we got it all put together so that we could either, you know, sort of look down at others or feel smug about our spot. Anybody know any religious people who come across that way? Uh, We can easily do this. And Christian friends, you wanna know how it's easy to identify if that's happening in us, if we've made an idol, idol out of being good, is just to see what happens when something goes wrong in our lives. What do we, what do we, how do we wrestle through that? Do we either at the conscious level or subconsciously say, God, how could you do this? How could you let this happen? I've been following you since my youth. Um, The point is we can just make, we can make just about anything into an idol, even good and wonderful things. And Jesus is saying if we're not careful, they can become, they are ultimate things that essentially become our Lord and Savior, that become our functioning gods. Now, does this mean that wealth or career ambition, relationships, what people think of us, being a good person, is that to say that all of this is bad? No, these are wonderful things. But the warning here is it's easy to make them into our ultimate thing and receive love from them that can only be conditional apart from God and his unconditional love. And this man went away sad, um, which is really interesting because Jesus had showed for him that he not only had not seen that wealth had taken this position in his life, but even after Jesus had revealed this, the guy still said, okay, I see that, but I don't want to change it. Uh, This is a real powerful segment in terms of understanding the human heart. Uh, idolatry can have a real strong power on us. Uh, my, my little guy, eight-year-old Caleb and I are reading Lord of the Rings. We made our way through Hobbit, Fellowship of the Ring. We're just trudging our way. We're gonna get through, and again, I realize this is more for daddy than for, for son, but he's actually sticking with me. They're in smaller, smaller spurts, but anyways, uh, you know, we're going through it, and Tolkien, of course, had great insight into what we're talking about here, right? That's what the great ring of power is metaphor for, right? The great ring of power that each in the company as they're trying to help Frodo get to the mountain, these good people are like, oh, Frodo, would you just give me that ring? And they have their different reasons. It would make me so strong. I could beat every, we could beat back the evil forces. Or it would make me beautiful. It would make me powerful. And and so on and so forth. And of course, was it Gollum who said, it has come to me, my own, my precious. All of them actually come to say those sorts of words. 
Um, it, that was Tolkien's way of saying, hey, these idols can have a real power over, us, even, power over us, even wonderful and good things. So the question becomes, how do we identify these idols in our lives? A couple of quick, quick thoughts for your consideration. Um, we can ask, what keeps you up at night? What preoccupies your thoughts? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the day's problems, right? We all have problems. We all have things that we're gonna be thinking about and keep us up whenever. I'm talking about, you know, it keeps us up one night and then the next, and then the next, or there's, there's weeks of times or there's months, maybe even years, maybe even decades that we just keep coming back to because it, it's just, it, it's got us. It, it brings so much anxiety that if we just don't have it, it's gonna mess us up or if, if we were at something were ever to threaten it, it would mess us up. Here's another question. What would you go to great lengths for? What do you spend energy trying to justify in your mind and your heart that it's okay, apart from God? Um, if you're really feeling brave, and I'm not sure I actually recommend this, you can ask someone close in your life what they think your idol is. Um, the reason why I say you might not want to do that is because look at this guy who asks Jesus, he's told, and yet he f- walks away sad. Um, at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Twice we're told here that the disciples were amazed at Jesus' teachings. Um, And the reason for that is because back then it was widely believed that if you were rich, you had God's favor in your life. If you were rich, that meant God's hand of blessing was on you. You were a good person. And so the disciples were amazed because they're like, man, Jesus, if this guy can't get into heaven, who can? And Jesus presses it even further. He says, let me just put it this way. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for them to get into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This is the other hard saying here. You know, what's interesting is there's been a lot of scholarly gymnastics to try to take out some of the punch of this saying. Uh, You know, there's, for instance, there's been some Bible scholars who say, you know, the word here for needle can actually be translated rope, and what Jesus meant was actually you could get a rope, tie it into a, you know, a circle, and then just get a camel to just kind of fit through. It's hard, but you you can do it. You can get the camel through. The problem with that interpretation is, first of all, rope is not a good, translation for needle so there's that and then two Jesus says punchline this is impossible meaning you can't even stretch a rope to make it happen the other uh, interpretation people will put forth to try to take some of the sting out is oh what Jesus was referencing was this legendary gate just outside of Jerusalem that was really small and it was just the size that you know if a full-grown camel was trying to get through it would have to get down on its knees and just kind of be coaxed through and and so the what Jesus is saying is if you really humble yourself you know then you can get through the problem with that is we have almost we we, we have zero evidence that this legendary gate uh, was around anywhere uh, any time before ninth century after Christ. And then the second problem with that is Jesus said it was impossible. So I don't care what size the gate was, he's saying it's impossible. No, he's talking about a little, neat, right? That's Jesus' point. He's saying it's impossible for the rich, for anyone to get into the kingdom of God. We can't live the life 
we know we ought to live, and we all reject God in some form or fashion, bowing the knee to serve an idol that can't ultimately fulfill. And yet, verse 27, Jesus concludes with this very powerful statement, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And now we see what we learn from Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler about God himself. The disciples asked, verse 26, who then can be saved? Which really is the question, right? Um, Where's the hope? And all the pieces are actually already in this story. Uh, Did you notice that when this guy came to Jesus with his question, that he not only asked the question, but he addressed Jesus in kind of a a unique way that Jesus kind of paused and wanted to deal with real quickly? Did you notice that when we read it? He said, what, he's a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of, before answering the question, says, good teacher, we, good teacher, good. No one is good except God. God alone is good. What Jesus was doing was tipping this guy off to the gospel. Even before he was gonna say, hey, here, here are the commands, you follow them, and the guy's like, I followed him. He's like, wait, 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 I already, t- I already gave you a hint. No one's good, no one's good but God alone. Not even you, rich, young ruler, Um, You know, there's a really helpful way to think about this that the Bible kind of sets up for for so much of its length um, is is the Bible talks about this in terms of two covenants, okay? Two covenants essentially, there are essentially two covenants between God and all of humankind in in, in the scriptures. Um, And a covenant is basically an agreement between two parties that is both legally binding and relationally binding binding, okay? So contracts are legally binding. Um, They're more transactional in nature. Covenants also have relational uh, binding uh, weight to them. So for example, the best uh, covenant um, uh, example would be marriage vows, okay? When we stand before uh, not only the state and, you know, have that power, but but in terms of people and in, in between the persons, we are vowing legally and relationally to be faithful to one another and to one another alone as long as we both shall live, right? That's, that's a Covenant. Covenants are the most sacred agreements that we can make between two parties. Well, the first covenant of these two covenants we find in the Bible between God and, and humankind was with Adam. And it was basically kind of like the marriage vows. You will be faithful to me and I will be faithful to you. I will be your God, you will be my people. And what we find on page three and through the rest of the Bible is we weren't faithful. <laughs> We weren't faithful, and actually much of life today is us not being faithful, uh, even as God is faithful to us. That was the first covenant. And so, so much of what the Bible gets at after that, page three or so, is God saying, hey, there's a new covenant coming. There's a new covenant, and it's gonna be beautiful. What's the new covenant? Essentially the same exact thing. I will be your God, and you will be my people if you are faithful to me, except he didn't make it this, the new covenant with Adam, the first Adam, he made this new covenant with the new Adam, as Romans 5 talks about it. The new Adam, of course, being Jesus. If Jesus would be faithful to God, live the righteous life, the faithful life that we could and, and can't live, uh, couldn't and, and can't live, then it, by his death on the cross and the forgiveness that we can re- receive for him, from him for what he's done, we can be brought back into a relationship because of what he has done a free gift and offer of grace. Uh, that is what is amazing about this text. When, when, when Jesus says what is impossible for man is possible with God, the beautiful statement about that is not so much that we can't do our part 
It's actually more of a statement of, and God sent his son to live for us and die for us. God did the unthinkable. God did the impossible. Because while the rich young ruler lived for this idol of wealth, you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that Jesus left all heavenly wealth in heaven and became to li- became poor to live among us and ultimately die for us to make life, uh, eternal life in him possible. And while the rich young ruler uh, found his identity in things like doing good things and being righteous, the gospel is Jesus left heaven and all that the true righteousness of being in heaven could afford to live a life righteously but to die for our unrighteousness and to give us his righteousness. This is the gospel, that he loves us that much. A free gift of grace received by faith alone. And you can receive that today. It's just saying, Lord, I I receive this, who you are and what you've done for me on the cross. I receive forgiveness of sins and what you've offered me, your death for me. And I want to receive the life that only you can offer. Uh, You can receive this today. And to those of you who have received this, the call here is to lean into him all the more for what he is, who he is and what he's done for us. Because the reality is we all bow the knee to some idol or idols, all of us. And you know what Jesus' response to us is, even as we do so? It's the same response he had to this rich young ruler when he looked at him and loved him. Um, I, I love this about God. The way he works with us is always graciously and lovingly. Uh, He's not looking to pound you into the ground to make you feel bad about the way that you live apart from him, even as he is graciously and lovingly drawing you back to him. Um, So where in your life are you living ultimately for things apart from him? Uh, Where are you looking for your deepest needs to be met in things that ultimately can't, at least uh, forever? Uh, Things that won't last, things that can only love us conditionally, and where can you instead look to him uh, to be and to fulfill this great, the greatest and deepest longings that you have and that you need? Um, what would it look like for you to come and follow Jesus knowing that what's impossible with man is, is, is possible with God? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these wonderful hard sayings They're wonderful because they're beautiful. And they're beautiful because they don't point just to our failings, our flaws. They point to who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you that though the way was impossible, you did the impossible in sending your son to be with us, to live the life we couldn't live and ultimately to die the death that we deserve such that we can have life and life to the fullest in him that we can receive your unconditional love, meaning even when we fail, which we do far more often than we care to admit or recognize, you forgive us and you graciously call us back into the life of freedom that you offer. Please help us in these ways, both individually and as a church family. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.